Hey, good day, everybody. This is Joe. I'm going to do something a little different today. Our friend D.L. Mayfield is releasing her book today. It's August 16th, and my interview with her isn't quite ready for prime time yet. But with her permission, I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book, Assimilate or Go Home. It's a beautiful book about her time spent here within the United States working with refugees and growing to know them, and really her, what she refers to it, failed time as a missionary. D.L. is a wonderful writer, and this book is so timely and touching. I really feel like it's something I want to share with you. So with, again, her permission, I'm going to go ahead and read a chapter from her book called Wade in the Water. Abdi, Jamila's husband, was dying. Several years ago, I was informed that all he wanted was to wash in the ocean before he died. He had been dying ever since I first met him, that grand old man of the apartment complex, dressed in pristine clothes and carrying a distinguished cane. He could be both severe and effusive within a matter of seconds, and I was slightly terrified of him. He would always rise when I entered a room and extend his hand for me to clasp. He was missing a finger on his right hand, which I tried never to stare at. He taught me how to do the proper greetings. As-salam alaykum wa alaykum salam. I could never really tell for sure what he had, tuberculosis I had heard. I spent so much time with the family that I needed shots to protect against TB and ended up testing slightly positive for it at my Bible college. Minor heart attacks all around. The other disease is what seemed to be truly killing him. Parasites he got from Africa, and the well-meaning American doctors giving him medications that had started to liquefy his internal organs. His skin turned gray. He lost what little weight he had, and the whites of his eyes glowed a neon yellow. He was shipped off to the Midwest for three months, where the doctors evidently know a little more about tropical diseases. I was worried it was the last time I would ever see him but Abdi came back as fresh as I'd ever seen him, yelling at all of us to go fetch him some food, and then smiling broadly at us, like some benevolent dictator and his clueless subjects. Life went on for a year. Abdi lived his life with relish, always sadly frowning and telling me he was dying, yet actively indulging in every pleasure his doctors had strictly forbidden, smoking a pipe on the front steps, eating spicy hot Cheetos delicately, one at a time, drinking a covert beer now and then. And then I was informed by Holly, his oldest daughter, that he wanted to go to the ocean and wash in it before he died. Of course, I accepted the request. You never disobey a dying man. My friend Jan, the one who first introduced me to the Somali community, volunteered to drive us all to the coast in her beat-up Toyota Corolla. Abdi sat in the front seat, wearing a traditional tunic and cap with a cane between his legs. I sat squashed in the middle seat between Abdi's wife, Jamila, and his best friend, Ali. It was very hot in that tiny little car, and it was a two-hour drive to the beach. Jan had purchased some Somali praise music, a covert way of trying to convert our dear friends, and it was all cheap electronic devices and tinny sounds. I found myself happily breathing in the smells of sweat, pretending like I was in Africa. In that moment, it didn't seem so implausible. We got to the beach and stopped to survey the next challenge. The entire way over I had been so busy praying for everybody that I forgot what the Pacific Northwest Coast is like in June. Cold. Blustery, gray, and cold. 
We used the public restrooms and then sat in the car eating boiled corn on the cob that they brought in plastic bags, trying to gain the strength to go out into the wild. The mood turned somber. Everyone was quiet as we stared at the gray, white-tipped water. I tried to explain how truly frigid the water would be, using the few words of their language I knew. But Abdi had a look of determination in his eyes and ordered us out of the car. We trudged down the dunes and started making the long trek out to the water. As the wind brought tears to my eyes, I had a sudden thought. Oh my gosh. If he goes in the water, he'll die of pneumonia. I am going to kill Abdi. I turned around to wave my arms and warn them all, but what I saw stopped me short. There was Abdi, stripped down to his boxers, staring solemnly at the sea. He was emaciated, tired, hanging on to his cane for dear life. His wife and best friend had stopped walking. We were all staring at Abdi, and he himself was having a staring contest with somebody. Allah, the ocean, himself. I couldn't breathe, couldn't watch as he stepped into the ice-cold water. I turned my back. Abdi muttered something to himself. I imagined trying to explain his imminent pneumonia to the volunteer organization, cursing myself for getting into this mess. And then I heard the peals of laughter. I turned back around and Jamila and Ali were doubled over in laughter, hysterical to the point of tears. Abdi was slowly putting his clothes back on, muttering to himself. He says it's too cold, Ali gasped, pantomiming Abdi putting one toe in the ocean and then jumping back with a shriek. He says it's too cold, Ali said, wiping tears from his eyes, and he wants to go back home. And that was that. Unbeknownst to me, they had come prepared for this scenario, filling up the trunk with all sorts of empty milk cartons and detergent bottles. We scooped up as much of the water as we could manage and drove it home. They later told me that they had heated it up on the stove and then dumped it in the bathtub. So Abdi did get his wish, in the end. On the way home, all three of us fell asleep in the back seat, heads lolling on one another. I woke up, as disoriented and peaceful as a child. I looked around me the heads of Jamila and Ali resting on my shoulders. Abdi stretched out as much as he could in the front seat. The closeness to it all astounded me. I was young and healthy, and life seemed to stretch ever out in front of me, ready to be saved, ripe for the harvest. I did not know how to prepare for death and sickness and sadness, because I did not really think any of those things could ever happen to me. There is an old spiritual song that goes like this. Wade in the water, wade in the water, wade in the water. God's going to trouble the waters. It gets stuck in your head like a funeral dirge, slow and solemn. I heard it later in my life, and I could not let that song go. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was a refugee, that he would so easily be able to identify with the life experiences of my friends, of Abdi and Jamila and Ali, makes me ache. He experienced many of the same sorrows, running from power-hungry people and experiencing losses of life and culture and home. And he came to deliver people, to heal and restore and bring justice, and to show us that we cannot prove ourselves worthy to God. We are simply his beloved children in the end. The Bible tells the story in John 5 of Jesus coming to the pool of Bethsaida, a place where there was a great multitude of sick people, the paralyzed, the chronically ill, the blind. 
All of these people in various stages of dying hung out by the pool because they wanted to be well. The Bible tells of a strange, mysterious angel who would come every so often and stir up the waters with his wings. When that happened, the sick and the sad would rush to plunge into the water to be healed by the touch of God. But one day, it is Jesus who goes there, the real-life messenger of God, and he sees a man who has waited nearly four decades to go into the waters and come out new. Jesus asks the most obvious question. Jesus asks the sick man, Do you want to be made well? The man answers that he has tried for years to get down to the water whenever it gets muddled, but that others always get to it first. Jesus looks at him and tells him to rise up and walk. And then the Bible tells us that this is exactly what the man did. I imagine the man just staring at Jesus, then looking around at the thousands of gray souls surrounding him, arms outstretched toward the water, eyes looking high in the sky for a miracle to touch down, everybody wanting to wade in the water, wanting to be born again, born into different bodies, a different life. In the car on the way home from the beach, my arms were pinned to my sides by the friends sleeping on either side of me. So when I started to cry big fat tears, they just rolled right on down my face. I cried because I knew that Jesus understood what it meant when somebody wanted to go wash in the ocean before they died. I cried because I knew that even as I had remained unaware of the masses of the sick and the dying of the world, knowing nothing about the horror and the atrocities and the injustice, Jesus was not. He, a stateless wanderer himself, carried the broken with him wherever he went. He understood their lives of pain and suffering, and he ached with love for the world. But still the truth remained. Most of the people at the pool of Bethsaida waded into that water, and they came out the same. Abdi seemed to rally after that trip. Perhaps the salty ocean water really was restorative. Life went on as normal, or as normal as it was back then. He was still in and out of the hospital, and many of my afternoons were spent ferrying various children and spouses back and forth to his hospital room delivering meals of cold-boiled potatoes and goat meat, since he refused to eat the American food. One day, about five months after the beach trip, I took his three daughters to visit him during one such occasion. He was sitting upright in his bed when we went in, his eyes as clear as I had ever seen them, papers spread messily all over his bed. When we came in, he announced that he wanted to read us a story. That sly fox. For the past year or so, Abdi had been learning to read and write in his own language. This was a recent phenomenon, because until that year, his language hadn't ever been written down. During his years in Somalia, he was denied access to education, and so this was his first experience with being literate in any language. Someone, I didn't know who, had been teaching him to read and write in his brand new language. He picked up several of the papers and started to read, slowly and haltingly sometimes saying the same word three or four times. The pride in his work was palpable. I didn't even need Holly to translate it for me. I knew he was reading the story of his life, the hard times in Somalia, the war, the deaths, the fighting, fleeing to Kenya, and the experiences of the camps. I heard the names of his children, and he read them painstakingly slowly, savoring the syllables. Then he read about coming to America— and being happy, and finally, of meeting me and Jan. When he finished, 
Looking up with those clear eyes, I burst into clapping. He seemed pleased and paused, and then he decided to read the story again. And again. I didn't know it then, but that was the last time I would ever see Avdi. He read that story as many times as we could take it, his daughter's board and kicking the edges of the bed by the time we left. He ate his cold-boiled potatoes and complained bitterly about the hospital food. He was modest in the face of my effusive compliments on his writing achievements, but I could see that deep down he was flushed with pride. A few days later, he died of complications from his diseases. At the time, I am ashamed to say, I was pleased that I made it into the glorious, chaotic, painful story that was his life. Later, months later, I asked his daughters if they had saved the story that he had written, his first and last. No one knew where it was. No one can even tell me where he was buried. He was a poor, uneducated refugee. Nobody cared when he was young and everyone around him was dying. Nobody cared when his farms were burned and he almost starved to death on the journey to a refugee camp. And certainly, nobody seemed to care much when he arrived here, penniless and sick, and with absolutely nowhere else to go. Where was his deliverer? I wanted to ask. Why was the kingdom, as Bob Dylan so eloquently put it, such a slow train coming? While God was busy waiting for the perfect time to restore everything, people like Abdi lived and suffered and died, almost in near anonymity. I couldn't find the right answers in my religion or my scriptures anymore even though I had been trained to look for them. Instead, all I could find was comfort, a sense of a God who understood my questions and sorrows, a God who could identify with Abdi and his life, even when I could not. I also was blessed by my short time with Abdi. I was privileged to meet him, share food with him, drink chai and listen to his stories. I knew the nickname he had for his middle daughter, the one that roughly translated to beautiful, how it made her round face flush. I knew he was stern and just. I knew how he waved his cane in the air when he had a good point to make. I knew he only liked his wife's cooking and how proud he was of his only living son. I knew that even though I could not identify with nearly any aspect of his life, I knew someone who could. I had been changed by Abdi's life, and I will carry him with me always. He was like an angel to me, the one to muddy the waters I had always thought were so clear, Abdi and his entire family pointed out all the ways I was really paralyzed by indifference and selfishness. They revealed to me the human cost of a very unjust world. But more than anything, it seems to me now, Abdi was a messenger of God himself, asking me the most important question of all. Did I want to be well? And that concludes the chapter. I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, it's a beautiful book. DL has done a wonderful job of putting it together. And I hope that encourages you to check out Assimilator Go Home by DL Mayfield. It's available every place you can buy books. You know where those places are. I don't need to enumerate them for you. God bless and have a great day. Thanks for listening. Frequency.fm is a podcast featuring Christian artists, authors, creatives, and experts. For more music reviews, book reviews, and articles, please visit us at Frequency.fm.